0: Anyone else? Jack, how can we pray for you?
1: Um I'm doing fine.
0: <laughs> 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 Made it back from Minneapolis. <coughs> so glad back. That's us pray. Father God, we uh we just pause and thank you, Lord, tonight for your your gift of assembling us uh, in the name of your son. Um, this is a, a gift that we're here. Uh, we, we do walk out of here uh, edified and, and uplifted um, and because of what you bring here. So we thank you. Lord, I pray for these, these, these requests, these things that have been mentioned. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that you would just hear the requests, hear the hearts of all. Those who are processing grief at the anniversary of death. Those who are recovering from injury. And of course, Lord, sickness is rampant in our communities, in our church, in our families. We just pray for your protective hand, your healing touch. We just need you, and this is a time of dependence. And so teach us how to depend. Teach, teach us to have. Faith and trust that you you are good even when we are not feeling well and wrestling with illness. Cause us to turn to you. And tonight we going to pray for Chad as, as he teaches again <clears throat> wow, just blesses us with rich insight into how your hand has you worked in the history of the church. Well God, tonight I pray that this would be a night for you and for your glory and for your people. In Jesus' name. Help me out. Again. Right. Looks like you're recording.
1: Am I? Yep. Uh oh.
0: You are.
1: <laughs> no, I wasn't working at the bathroom.
0: <laughs> I have never done that. I've been I have I have been blessed not to do that.
1: I one guy like Okay, now I want to start this tonight by kind of pointing out some theological issues that we need to keep in mind as we march forward into looking at Baptists in America, and then, of course, also Baptists in the South. So up on the left-hand corner, top left-hand corner of the board, what I've done is I've written down three doctrinal concepts. And the first is one that we're all familiar with, It's the Doctrine of Justification by Faith. And of course, it was Martin Luther that really made the recovery of this doctrinal idea uh, during the beginning stages of the Protestant Reformation. Um, We're not exactly sure when he put together the the concept and articulated it somewhere between fifteen thirteen, fifteen eighteen, but right in in that period, uh, Luther rebelled against the church, that is the Roman Catholic Church, and articulated the doctrine that the the believer is justified that made right in the sight of god by faith and not by one's relationship to the church so this was central to the reformation this was taught by all of the reformers including john calvin and zwingli and a bunch of other uh european names most of us are not all that familiar with but this becomes the key theological issue that sparks the Reformation. Now, uh, the problem with Luther is that Luther continued to practice infant baptism. Okay, and so it was a group of other Reformers about 10 years later originating in Switzerland who uh, essentially stated that baptism ought to be for believers or disciples and only for believers or disciples. Now, in a previous uh, conversation we had, I pointed out that infant baptism served a twofold purpose it brought you into the church, but it also cemented your relationship to the political structure. And of course, this notion of infant baptism had uh, had been reigning supreme in the Catholic Church all the way back to early Catholicism. At least as far back as about 250 A.D. And there's some historical dispute among scholars as to whether it can be found in Christian literature before that. In fact, some of the most prominent 20th century scholars argued that it could not. But around 250, Uh, A guy by the name of Cyprian, who was a Catholic bishop in North Africa, uh, promoted the notion of infant baptism, and this idea caught on quickly. And so by the time we get to about the year 400, infant baptism is the the predominant method of baptism. (laughs) Uh, not exclusive, because there were still a lot of people being converted from pagan religions, and so they were being baptized as adults because they were not Christians or they were not members of the church or their families were not when they were infants, okay but over over time, infant baptism takes on this role of being how you are united with the church and how that affects your relationship to the state, to the government. And that's a whole set of issues that we just don't have time to go into, okay? But that's where it was. And when the Protestant Reformation began under Luther, and then some of the other early Reformation figures, they held on to infant baptism. And so even though there was a break with Rome in places like Switzerland and some of the the German provinces, infant baptism was still the practice. It's just that now you were no longer a part of whatever state, say France, uh, you happen to be born in, connected to the Catholic Church, now you're a member of the state in Lutheran areas or in the Reformed churches. Over time, this is adopted also by John Calvin. Okay, it's going to be one of the areas in which I think Calvin was wrong. People sometimes ask me, are you a Calvinist? And I have to ask the next question, what do you mean by that? And so when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, I would answer yes. The doctrine of the state, not so much. The doctrine of the church, not so much. Okay, But what happened was these radicals, and I use that term in the historic meaning of the word, which means down to the root, uh, these radicals sometimes also called the Anabaptists said no. um, If we're going to carry Martin Luther's doctrine of justification by faith alone to its logical conclusion... We have to reject infant baptism because if you're only saved by your personal faith in Christ, then only people with that personal faith in Christ should be baptized, which means it can't happen to infants because infants don't have a personal relationship with Christ, at least it's hard for me to see how they they could now luther actually actually believed they could he believed that that an infant could go from sort of goo goo dada one moment to the hallelujah chorus the next moment and then once finished with the baptismal event back to goo goo da again. Okay, now I'm, you understand that that's not a, quite how Luther would put it, but that's my sort of assessment as a Baptist of Luther's concept. What we're going to talk about tonight, and on uh, next Wednesday night, the pastor has, Graciously granted me one more Wednesday night. Was a mutiny? Yeah, I I caught them all before they came in the door. Is talk about how that also has a relationship to the question of religious liberty or freedom of the conscience. So I want to read one short text. Uh, to you from Acts chapter 4 this is when Peter and John are called on the carpet in Acts 4 called on the carpet by the Sanhedrin the religious officials in uh, Judea at the time and told that they can't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And so in Acts chapter 4, verse 18, when they, the Sanhedrin, had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you Rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, we're claiming the right of religious uh, conscience to be disobedient to the government to preach in the name of Christ. Or, to put it in... The language I put up here, we claim the right to religious freedom to state our case and to and to uh, defend what we believe. So uh, that's the theological material we're going to kind of summarize and wrap up here tonight. Now I've mentioned a couple of these names here before. We're going to wrap up all of our material on the English political history tonight. Even, we've been talking about this, so if you have uh, missed the last couple of Wednesday nights, you want, might want to get the, it's not on tape, it's on the website. Yeah, no, it'll be uploaded by tomorrow. Okay, uploaded by tomorrow. Um, remember last time we talked about the Puritan movement? and how the Puritan movement, especially under Oliver Cromwell, had provided for religious freedom, religious religious liberty in England, but that after the death of Cromwell and the failure of his son to provide adequate leadership, we have the return of the king, the restoration of the monarchy, in 1660, Charles II, the son of Charles I, remember, remember, we talked about how Charles I had been beheaded by Parliament uh, because of his oppression of the Puritan party and his uh, his failure to give Parliament their right, under English law, to raise taxes. Uh, the king simply tried to uh, mandate his authority and assume authority he didn't have. They put him on trial. He uh, was found guilty and beheaded. And we had that period known sometimes as the interregnum, which just means in between the kings but in 1660 parliament uh, the english people decide that they're tired of being ruled by parliament and the puritan party and so they restore charles now charles ii to the throne charles rules from 1660 until he dies in 1685. now when charles died he had no legitimate heir. remember this had been a problem with the Tudor family before now the Stuart family is on the throne, and he has no legitimate heir. Now he has fourteen children, at least. we know of fourteen that we can count, but no legitimate children, okay. And so when he dies, his brother, James, becomes king. And, of course, he takes the name James II. So he will be the last of the Stuart monarchs. Here's what happened. James had married a French woman uh, because he was in exile when his father was uh, beheaded, exile in France, married a French woman. They had a child, a daughter. They named her Mary. And Mary had grown up and came of marrying age. And when she got married, she didn't marry one of her cousins or any of those people who were part of her family or that had historic ties to the English crown. Instead, she married a Dutch prince by the name of William, and he was Prince of Orange. Yeah, Orange was the name of the that part of Holland. I'm sorry, guys, but that's, you know, the Dutch have weird names for things. Or we have weird names name for, for things. The Royal House of Orange. So, uh, their daughter married William, Prince of Orange. Now, she stood in line to be the next monarch, unless James had a son. Now, James's first wife died. And he married another French woman, a very Roman Catholic French woman. And James, having been raised in France as a boy, also had Catholic sympathies. And so he marries this woman. And pretty soon, well, after a couple of years, everybody in the court noticed that the queen was looking a little poochy. And sure enough, before long, the evidence was undeniable. The queen was going to have a child. Now, of course, before the days of ultrasound, you had to wait for the magic moment, which was how my children were born, by the way. We didn't know. It's like... You know, flip a coin, whatever comes out, comes out. And so, James was fearful that if his wife, this very Catholic queen, gave birth to a boy, then Mary would not become the next Queen of England, but instead the son no matter how old he was, would become the king. Now, just one word about Mary and William of Orange. William of Orange was very much a Protestant, and in fact, he was a Calvinist. He was a staunch Calvinist because that was the state church in the Netherlands at the time. And she had converted to his staunch Calvinism, Mary had. And so the prospect for Parliament was the next queen and potentially king of England would be staunch Calvinists. Or if James's second wife gave birth to a boy, not so much because The fear was that if he gave birth to, well, whatever they gave birth to, they were going to raise that baby a Catholic. And they had enough historical awareness to remember the last time that England had a Catholic monarch on the throne. And that was our good uh, Queen Mary, Queen, Queen Bloody Mary. So, Parliament actually stationed spies in the palace because nobody passed the king who, when the child was born, would have somehow brought forth this little baby girl that we just gave birth to until the child was old enough and then proclaimed that, no, it was a son after all. So William knew, I'm sorry, James knew that he was in potential trouble if the queen gave birth to a boy. Well, sure enough, the queen gave birth to a bouncing baby boy. And at that point, James knew that he was in mortal danger. And so was his wife. And so was his newborn baby. And so uh, he sent his wife and the newborn male child to France for a family holiday while he got everything ready, financially and otherwise, to follow them. But he also knew that if he followed them, Parliament would likely have learned about it, have discovered that the king was doing this, that he was going to join his wife in exile, and at some point in the future would try to make a comeback. And so James feared for his life. So what he did do was he dressed in women's clothing We have lots of different terms for that nowadays, but we'll just keep it at he dressed in women's clothing, got into a carriage, made his way to the English Channel, crossed over safely, and joined his wife and son in France. But once the word had leaked out that the queen had given birth to a baby boy— Now, James's first child, that daughter, Mary, who had married the Dutch prince, William of Orange, her husband gathered together an army of about 20,000 Dutchmen, and they marched on England. And what wound up as potentially another Catholic king over England eventually wound up being a bloodless coup as they would say and so parliament installed William and Mary on the throne now Mary only conceded to this if they could be co-monarchs you don't normally hear about co-monarchies in England like Queen Elizabeth her husband is was duke of edinburgh he's not the king just because he married the queen but she said i'll come my husband will come we're we're going to be co-monarchs and so one of the first universities founded in the british colonies is the college of william and mary all right so Uh, This is sometimes referred to as the Glorious Revolution because it was a bloodless coup. And the next year, 1689, uh, Parliament passed an act called the Act of Toleration, which meant no more persecution of non-Anglicans. Now, it still wasn't quite religious liberty, but nonetheless we're done with England. We'll touch base briefly uh, back with them uh, another time or two. On the other hand, what was happening in the American colonies was that we had what would eventually be 13 colonies, Okay, that all 13 did not get founded at the same time, we had 13 colonies eventually, and about half of those colonies had a state church. Now, when we think of America, we think of the United States of America. But when they thought about it back then... And even, even at this point, before the American Revolution took place, even after, even after the revolution took place, they would not refer to it as the United States of America. They referred to it as the United States of America. And that little pause, it's very, very significant because at this point, they're just 13 colonies. And those 13 colonies originally each had an independent relationship to England. And once the revolution was done, they each had an independent relationship with other countries like France and Spain and so on. All right. And some of those colonies had a state church. Now, I just wanted to say that, but before we can talk about those state churches, we need to back ourselves up a little bit into the persecution period that took place from the mid 1700s until the uh, ratification of the Constitution. And I've broken this down by Massachusetts and Virginia, because those are the two places that had the greatest amount of religious intolerance And they were also the most significant political entities. And they were also the two colonies that gave the Baptists the greatest amount of fits. So, for instance, in Massachusetts, um, there were laws on the books, even after Massachusetts was no longer an Anglican colony, it became a Congregationalist colony. We talked about that the last time. Even during that period, when they were no longer Anglican, they made it illegal for other churches besides the Congregational-type churches to meet and to worship together. Uh, in fact, when it came to some groups, they made they made it positively virtually impossible so the group that were most persecuted in massachusetts during the 17th century were the quakers now, the quaker movement was founded in england in the 1640s and eventually they made their way One by one to the new world. Because they were persecuted in England. uh, Right up until the act of toleration and the glorious revolution. So they were persecuted in England. The idea was we'll go to America. Maybe things will be better for us there. Not in Massachusetts. In Massachusetts they hanged four quakers on boston common in the 1650s and if you don't know where boston common is if you're a fan of the old tv show cheers well that's that park right across the street imagine four quakers hanging from a scaffolding um uh, uh, a gibbet, as they would have called it in those days, um, because they were practicing the Quaker faith. Why were they so opposed to the Quakers? because the Quakers were the most outspoken defenders of religious liberty at the time, even more so than Baptists, and not only were they outspoken defenders of religious liberty, but they also uh were egalitarian's in other words they didn't have pastors in quaker churches when they met together for a a gathering by the way I, you sometimes in having conversations with people today you'll hear, hear people say things like Well, I'm just not, I'm just against organized religion. And I always want to, and occasionally have, ask those people, well, then you must believe in disorganized religion. Because that's the opposite of organized religion. Well, no, we just, we're just going to meet in somebody's house. Okay. Um, what time are you meeting? And more importantly, who's bringing the donuts, and who's making the coffee. Because once you decide when and where you're meeting, who's bringing the donuts and who's making the coffee, you got organized religion. All right? So, but the Quakers were defenders of unorganized religion, except that they did still meet at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. But they had no pastors. Men could stand up and speak or sing. Women could stand up and speak or sing. I mean, that's a debate we're having in some churches even today among people that don't read their New Testament very well. Isn't that similar to the Amish today? No, Amish came from the Mennonites, Now, Amish do have some practices similar to Quakers, Uh, but for the most part, Amish society is patriarchal, but the Quaker society was not patriarchal. It was, you know, whatever the spirit leads. I'm not sure that most Amish know what the spirit is, but... Anyway, Amish got their start in uh, 1699 as an offshoot of the Mennonites. Good question, though. Uh, The Amish are Mennonites that don't trim their beards and don't use buttons on their shirts. Those are, imp- those are important issues. I'm sure there's a verse in there somewhere. Okay. Um, but, uh, in Massachusetts, there was persecution. Baptists were whipped and imprisoned. Uh, no Baptists were killed for their Baptist faith, either in Massachusetts or Virginia. Uh, but the first, uh, the first meeting of a Baptist church in Boston took place in 1679. And when they showed up at church, the sheriff had made sure that all the doors were nailed shut. So they couldn't meet. Now, the next week, they pulled the nails out, they let them meet. But just gives you an idea. Same thing in Virginia. Virginia Baptists were subjected to a great deal of persecution. Um, <clears throat> the problem for the Anglicans in Virginia is that when they would arrest these Baptists and put them in the Husqvarna, you know, they had jails and they had jails usually with a a barred window that looked outside so they could get fresh air in. And they discovered that the Baptist preachers they elected would stand at those windows and preach to everybody that went by on the streets. And so the local Anglican priests or bishops would would pay their bail to get them out because they were causing more trouble in jail than they were causing out of jail. Okay, but two figures are very important in early Baptist uh, relig- religious liberty issues, Isaac Bacchus and John Leland. Now, Bacchus was uh, from Massachusetts and spent his entire ministerial career in uh, Massachusetts and Connecticut, both of which had the Congregational Church. Now, here's what was happening in Massachusetts and Connecticut. People were assessed, not only of their regular taxation, but they were also taxed to support the religious establishment. Now, the taxes weren't all that high compared to what we think about when we think about taxes, but any tax was considered to be a violation of religious conscience by these early Baptists. So there are stories that have filtered down to us, uh, many of them told by Isaac Bacchus, but some by others as well. I think I misspelled Isaac. Oh, well. It's got one S and two two A's. Um, the These stories tell about how someone would fail to pay a fifty shilling tax for the congregational church, and they would the sheriff would seize their orchards. Now, fifty shillings isn't, wasn't much even then, but it was a matter of conscience. Isaac Bacchus' own mother was fined less than one pound. You know, British have the pounds, pound sterling. She was fined. She was assessed a tax of less than one pound, and she refused to pay it because she said it's a violation of my conscience. And I what they're making me do is this. I go to my Baptist church and I give a free will offering, but then I got to pay a tax to the congregational church as well. And that's just unjust. And so for owing less than a one pound tax, she opted instead to go to jail. She spent 13 days in jail. And she wrote letters to her son, Isaac, from jail that are remarkably eloquent in um, her talking about how uh, what, what, what looked to be a dungeon to others was like heaven to her. And Isaac Bacchus eventually joined the battle against this kind of religious oppression as he considered it to be, and as I would consider it to be as well. And you know, I mean, it's one thing if they if they throw you in jail, Pastor, or especially Paul, some of you other men, it's one thing to throw me in jail. Don't mess mess with my mama. And that's what happened. And so he wrote two very important books. I won't tell you the titles, but two two very important books on religious liberty, and he's writing these books in the in the 1770s and 1780s. He has a very interesting argument. He said, "You know, I'm a Baptist. Our state church is congregational." Because I'm a Baptist, I'm not allowed to be involved in the decision-making process in the congregational church. And therefore, there should be, what do you think his argument was? No taxation without representation. He's making this argument in Boston. all right where the sons of liberty had dumped a bunch, bunch of tea in the harbor based on that very argument that was i mean that wasn't his only argument but that was part of it so bacchus takes a strong stand and eventually the the government uh says to the people, okay, we'll not authorize the congregational church to collect religious taxes from people that don't belong to that church, but we still believe that everybody should pay a religious tax. Bacchus said no. Churches should be supported by free will offerings not by anything that the government sticks its sticky fingers into. Now, John Leland was also from Massachusetts, but spent a number of years in Virginia. And Leland, a very important figure for a different reason. I mean, it's still religious liberty uh, issues that he stood for but his involvement was of a different kind. John Leland happened to live in the same district as James Madison. In fact, they were friends, even though Madison was an Anglican. And of course, at the end of the Revolutionary War, the Anglicans in America had to decide what they were going to do with their religious loyalty should we still call ourselves anglicans the church of england and of course some of you would know that the decision they made was no and they renamed their church to the episcopal church of america okay uh, the whiskey paleans to us today. So uh, this was where Leland lived in the heart of Episcopal territory, and just a few miles from James Madison's hometown. They lived in the same congressional district. Madison, of course, was given a key role in helping to uh flesh out the constitution Many of you would know the history we won the war the treaty of paris uh was was signed in seventeen eighty three War began in seventeen 17- 75, Treaty of Paris in 1783. We lived under the Articles of Confederation for a number of years, but that turned out not to work very well. And so they gathered in the summer of 1787 in Philadelphia. Madison, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, the whole crew, except Thomas Jefferson. He was the ambassador to France at the time. And uh, so Madison was given the task of fleshing out the details for the Constitution. And he and Leland had had conversations about this new Constitution over and over again. And Leland had said to Madison The new Constitution makes no provision for religious freedom. In fact, um, even after the Constitution was ratified, there were still states in the new United States of America. There were still states that had state churches, In Massachusetts, they did not disestablish the state church until 1833. That's what happens when you say no more state church. You have an established church, and then you have the disestablishment of a church okay so the establishmentarians were those who wanted there to be a state church in fact they wanted there to be a federal church the church of America but one night Madison went to Leland's house see Madison was up for election. he went to Leland's house, and they sat down together and met for four or five hours. There were plenty of Baptists living in Madison's district, and many of those Baptists had urged Leland to run against Madison for his congressional seat. But after that meeting that night, At John Leland's house, James Madison left, and a couple of weeks later he made an announcement I will push for a Bill of Rights to be added to the Constitution. And of course, the first amendment to the Constitution provides for, among other things, this statement. It's in two clauses. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Those are called the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. The Establishment Clause essentially states there can't be a federal church Congress shall pass no law respecting an establishment of, of, of religion. And then the second was just as important, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, let me tell you just a word or two about this Establishment Clause and why it was important. All the way back into early Roman Catholic history, guess what you had? Establishments of religion in North Africa, in Southern Europe, in England, in Germany, in Scandinavia, in the Byzantine Empire. All over the, the Christian world, you had the establishment of religion. And once the Reformation came along, the Reformation did not end the establishment of religion. It just established it on a different basis. Religion is now established in Switzerland according to what city you lived in. In Germany, depending on whether you were a northern German and therefore had establishment of Lutheranism or southern Germany, and you still had the establishment of Roman Catholicism in the Byzantine Empire Greece Turkey Russia all the way back to about a thousand a d you had establishments of religion based on whatever the political structure was but that statement in the First Amendment are the two statements, the anti-establishment statement and the free exercise statement combined together, prevented that from happening. Now, it's important to be clear about this. When Congress ratified the Constitution, most of which, well, they had enough votes by 1789 to do so. When Congress ratified the Constitution, they were not saying that religion and government don't have a relationship to each other. They were not saying in modern day Thinking about this, that we have to keep religion out of the schools. What they were saying was no state church or anything that resembles a state church. And in addition, Congress cannot prevent American people from the free exercise of their faith. Now, the historians who have written about this conversation between Leland and Madison have come to pretty much the same conclusion. If not for John Leland, we probably would not have those statements in the First Amendment to the Constitution. Next time you think about the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause in the American Constitution First Amendment, breathe a prayer of thanksgiving to God for a Baptist evangelist named John Leland. Because he had some role to play. Even if he played that role by pulling political strings, When Madison announced that he was going to support a First Amendment, Leland announced he would not be a candidate for Madison's congressional office. Okay? So, important to keep that in mind. Now, some of you know, and I briefly mentioned it last week as a teaser, Well, I won't tease you any longer. Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to a Baptist association in Danbury, Connecticut in 1802. And he wrote them a letter thanking them for defending religious liberty. Now, there's a little bit of a dark side. Of this letter because of the way it's been interpreted. Thomas Jefferson was not opposed to church and state working together for certain purposes. Thomas Jefferson uh, engineered a way for Congress to pass a spending bill that appropriated $50,000. That's a lot of money in the early 1800s for training American Indian children how to read and write in English. And the money was paid to Congregationalist missionaries. That's kind of an interesting connection of things because what Thomas Jefferson thanked the Danbury Baptists for doing was for contributing to religious liberty and for helping to build, and here's the famous phrase, a wall of separation between church and state. Now, I think had Jefferson known how that phrase, the wall of liberty or the wall of protection between church and state, had he known how that would be used later, he might have chosen his words differently. Maybe. I don't know that. I'm just guessing because of the fact that he appropriated congressional that, and when I say congressional funds, that means tax money that was was achieved through taxation, not income taxes but tariffs and other means of taxation they had available to them in those days. He appropriated that money, which he believed benefited benefited not only congregational churches but benefited the, the Native American tribes and benefited the United States of America I'm going to go back to our usual way of saying that but as a an act of gratitude for Jefferson's visit To the Danbury Baptists, and for writing that public letter, they gave him a gift. And the gift was a 1,300 pound wheel of cheese. Now, that's a big wheel of
0: cheese.
1: (laughs) That's a lot of pizza. That's a lot of pizza. Oh, yeah, it was probably about from the floor. About as tall as a man. Okay. So what was that cheese work? That is a question none of my students has ever asked me. What was the cheese work? In 1802 dollars, yeah. He he probably couldn't take the cash since he was the president, but, although it hasn't stopped other presidents. But, um, so the point here is that Baptists have been known for their defense of religious, religious liberty. And that defense of religious liberty goes back to Martin Luther's basic theological idea of justification by faith alone. You believe in Christ. Your salvation doesn't depend on whether or not your daddy believed in Christ, your mama believed in Christ, your grandpa was a deacon or your great grandpa was a, was a preacher. Your salvation is dependent on whether or not you have trusted Christ's atoning sacrifice. And by implication, as these Baptists made very clear, is this beautiful doctrine of Religious liberty, not just religious tolerance. Okay, those aren't the same thing. Not just not just that the state puts up with people practicing their faith the way that they want to, but the government takes its hands off and doesn't interfere with the faith of those. Who are under its jurisdiction. All right. Question. I don't know. Well, obviously, it was American cheese. Really?
0: Yeah.
1: I kinda wanna stay awake I'm gonna sit down while you ask the question because I'm having a little trouble here tonight. Do
0: you think today no
1: separation of church and Do I think Can you ask your question again? Do
0: do you think that today that there's complete separation of church and state?
1: Wow. There is not complete separation of state from what I would call religion. Because religion can take a variety of forms. It can take the form of a secularistic state that promotes atheism over and above any traditional belief in God. Okay, and I know that's a cheesy answer. Um we're talking about cheese <laughs> <laughs> cheese is the operative word this evening so um, I think that people who el- try to eliminate religion and again I use religion in a generic way people who try to eliminate that substitute something else they might substitute the worship of the state. That's what happened in Nazi Germany. That's what happened. Well, I mean, that was not only, that's not only just what happened in Japan, but that was part of Japanese culture for centuries, that the emperor is the representative of the state. And I think that there are there are people in our government today that would have us bow before the almighty mandates of and you can plug in a name there. I know which names I have in my mind, but I'll not say their names, Dr. Fauci. Um That's okay. Um, yeah, I I don't think, I don't think you can get away from this. Um, One famous theologian, he was German, but he came to America, um, said, your religion is that which you hold to be of ultimate concern. What is the highest thing? And nobody, nobody that I know anything about, and I read a lot of stuff, probably some stuff that you would say, why are you reading that? Well, because it's just what, what I do uh i don't know of anybody about whom you you could say they don't have a religion they do and the question is is it a demonic religion or is it something that is wholesome and right and that is truth Yeah. It was
0: definitely
1: God's hand. Well, you know, a lot of people in affluent societies, uh, they have a religion religion of stuff. Yeah. You know, you, you sometimes say, "Well, money was his god, or money is his god." I don't think it's so much money; it's what you do with what you can do with it, yeah. and what you can't do without it. It's, I mean, you know, left to myself, if I had not gone into the ministry or my second choice, a forest ranger, but had just tried to become as successful as I could be, my religion would be a Lamborghini Diablo. No. No, I mean you know I grew up in the bad part of Denver, and the rich people in our part of town were the ones who had two pickups up on blocks, you know, mm-hmm. instead of just one. But talking about, you like blue cheese, I love blue cheese, and it. and in fact, yeah. why don't we all go out? and have some dinner right after we're done here, and you can watch me eat my salad with blue cheese dressing. Yeah. yeah. You know, I knew there would be one wicked person here. Tonight. Um, yeah, well, I, you know, Paul talks about our relationship to the state. He says submit, he doesn't say obey. And what the apostles. We're essentially saying to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4 was, we'll submit to whatever you want to do, but we're not going to obey you. Those are two different concepts.